You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. The thylacine, or Tasmanian tiger, was an apex predator living in Australia, Tasmania, and New Guinea. It looks quite a bit like a striped dog with an enormous jaw, but was actually a marsupial and not closely related to dogs or wolves. The last known specimen died in captivity in a zoo in 1936. Since that time... Reports have continued to trickle in of people spotting them in the wild, but despite rewards posted of over a million dollars, no further specimens have been found. I thought it would be very interesting to play some audio of a thylacine during the intro, but sadly none was ever recorded. So instead, a moment of silence before we talk about this amazing animal on Monster Talk. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24 mile long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. On this episode of Monster Talk, we're going to be talking about thylacines, aka the Tasmanian tiger, and resurrecting extinct species and genetics and lots of other fun things. But first, I want to talk about the news. When you put together a show called Monster Talk, you'd better expect that people will send you emails about monsters. So, to answer all of you at once, yes, I saw the latest Bigfoot video, and I'd like to take a moment to talk about it. The video comes from Mr. Thomas Byers of North Carolina. In the video, a very blurry figure walks across the road and may even actually wave at the cameraman before disappearing into the brush on the other side. I was very disappointed at the coverage the story got. There's something very wrong with the video. First, it looks like a person in a cheap gorilla suit. Second, it's uniformly blurry. That may not seem immediately odd, but consider this. When was the last time you picked up a video camera that didn't have autofocus? Buyer said this camera was a slick brand video camera he got at the dollar store. But even the slick brand cameras have autofocus. 
In order to get an image as uniformly blurry as this one, you would need to run it through a video processor software and apply blur filters. And that's what this looks like to me. Byers also said the creature crossing the road smelled terrible. I'd say that the terrible scent he smelled was that of a poorly executed hoax. With that, on to the show. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Each episode, we talk about monsters and the science behind such tales as beasts are made of. I'm Blake Smith, and as usual, I'm joined in this episode by Benjamin Radford, Managing Editor, Skeptical Inquirer, and Dr. Karen Stolzno, Skeptical Investigator and host of the Point of Inquiry podcast. Today, we're talking about the thylacine, commonly known as the Tasmanian tiger or the Tasmanian wolf. Now, you may find yourself wondering why a show about monsters would discuss a real animal. Two major reasons pop into my mind. Despite being declared extinct, hundreds of people have claimed to have seen the animal alive since the last one died in captivity. That sort of sighting behavior is a key part of understanding cryptozoology. Because if credible people are sighting an animal that's dead, there's only a few reasons this could be. One, they're seeing a real thylacine, and that'd be a huge deal worth millions. Two, they're mistaken, and that's of interest to skeptics because we want to know more about why people think they see things when they technically don't. Or three, they're seeing ghost thylacines, which would also be of interest to skeptics, but is not worth millions in our views to biologists. Uh, the second major reason why these animals are of interest to monster fans is because scientists in the labs are working on resurrecting portions of the genomes of these animals. And once you've gone that far, you're really just one spilled flask and electrical shock away from... So that's why we're talking thylacines. And even though they're not really monsters, I think you'll find this interview monstrously entertaining. Just monstrust me on this one. Monster Talk. Today we're talking with Dr. Andrew Pask. He is an associate professor of genetics and genomics. And we're calling to talk about the thylacine experiment he did a few years ago. Uh, so let's start out with some of the basics. What is or was a thylacine, and uh, how did you get involved with it? So the thylacine is a really unique marsupial mammal. So they're quite different from the rest of the eutherian mammals or placental mammals, which is sort of everything we're more familiar with, so dogs, cats, cows, horses, everything that's not basically a marsupial or a monotreme is a eutherian, so basically the vast majority. Thylacines evolved independently from them and have been evolving independently from them for over 130 million years. So they're quite a unique lineage, or they're part of a unique lineage that is the marsupials. And what's really interesting about them is, is I guess, they went extinct very recently, which is what makes them particularly enigmatic, I think, for Australians in particular, is this is something that really was around in the early 1900s and, and that man really made go extinct very shortly thereafter. And uh, they're a very unique marsupial. They were called most completely carnivorous marsupial. And they look exactly like a, a dog or a wolf, which is why they got their, their nickname, the, the Tasmanian tiger or the Tasmanian wolf. They've got nice stripes down their back, so they look kind of tiger-like. And they have an extremely large jaw. So when they open their mouths, they had these really ferocious-looking mouths and ferocious-looking teeth, which made people think that they were big hunters that were going to kill the sheep and livestock and things that they were trying to farm around there. Well, Andrew, I'm a fellow Aussie, uh, Aussie expat, so nice to meet you. Uh, and you, 
You were talking about uh, how this creature uh, has special significance to Australians. So I'm just wondering, is that one of the reasons why you decided to get into this research, given your background? Yeah, so I was, I was really interested when I visited the Victorian Museum that they had so many well-preserved specimens of the thylacine. I guess one of the nice things about this and makes it kind of more tangible, I guess, for this sort of ancient DNA type work is that we have a lot of um, fixed specimens that were collected around the turn of the century. So this is not like dealing with the mammoth or dinosaurs where you're trying to extract DNA from, you know, really, really ancient specimens. This is something where we have really nicely preserved whole intact animals. So they had pouch young, so the little babies, whole um, animals actually preserved in ethanol in these museum collections. And being a geneticist, I immediately wondered, you know, how intact that DNA was, how intact their genome was, and what kind of information we could learn from it. You talked a little bit about what the thylacine was. When was it first described? Was it, was it unique to Australia, or was it also found in other places? So originally, the, thylacine, the thylacine's range was in Papua New Guinea and on mainland Australia, as well as Tasmania, which is an island off the coast of Australia. And then it went extinct in um, New Guinea and mainland Australia about 2,000 years ago. And we think it was when man came down and brought the dingo, so the, the dog, the Ethereum dog, with it. Those kind of two pressures of man and dingo pushed the thylacine out of its habitat in Papua New Guinea and on mainland Australia. Wait, are you, man- dingoes ate their babies? <laughs> no, <sorry. laughs> they could <laughs> So I guess they kind of pushed it out on the mainland and, and, and in Papua New Guinea, but then they managed to survive in Tasmania. So the, the, the most recent population, they were really quite prolific across the, the island of Tasmania until man moved down there and then wiped them out. So you talked about the specimens you had preserved in ethanol. So what was the nature of your experiment and why was it so important that you have good DNA to work it? So basically, um, I, I, I extracted DNA from these specimens, and the first thing I did was look at how intact the DNA was. And um, one of the nice things about working with these specimens was I was able to get quite a high yield of DNA back, which is something that usually in ancient DNA, that's the biggest problem is people have. Is trying, you have to use lots of, of cycles of amplification to get this DNA back from some of the more ancient specimens. And when you do that, you run the risk of, of putting a lot of contamination in, so you can easily contaminate yourself or you know, your ham sandwich that you were eating earlier can get in there or whatever. So it's a lot of problems. Whereas with the thylacine, when I did a DNA extraction, we actually got a huge amount of DNA back from the, from the specimen. So the DNA was intact, but it was highly fragmented, so broken up into lots and lots of little pieces, which is something we see across all ancient DNA specimens. That's one of the most common things is over time, the, the, the stress on the DNA and the oxidation and, and kind of the, the environmental influence of it being around for so long breaks that DNA backbone up. So you end up with lots and lots of tiny little fragments. But so what the experiment was that I did was I really wanted to see whether we can take this DNA from an extinct species and actually not just look at the DNA sequence, which people had done before for the mammoth and also for Neanderthal, you know, and just kind of compare gene sequences and things. But I was more interested in can we actually take that DNA and try and recreate its function? So can we resurrect the function from that piece of DNA and actually make it work again in the living organism so that we can then really start to address questions about how that piece of DNA worked, what the functions of the genes were, you know, what these things actually did, which you can't really tell just by looking at the sequence itself. Was the Tasmanian tiger any relation to the Tasmanian devil? They are related, but the most closely um, related relative to the, to the thylacine is the numbat which is sort of a opossum-sized, really cute marsupial, which has little stripes down its back as well. But, yeah, I they're know. the closest living relative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know what numbats are. 
Well, I not thought, wombats. you know, the, the U.S. people may not know what I know. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to picture this. So did the Tasmanian tiger spin around like very quickly in a, in a brown tornado blur or something? Yeah, it was exactly like that. You know, I have no idea how Warner Brothers came up with the, the Tasmanian devil cartoon. They didn't consult you? It's like, but really not so much, no. <laughs> uh, they, they, they should have consulted the scientists. Again, they really never do. <laughs> You know, maybe looked at a specimen before they drew it, you know. <laughs> I, I'm also concerned with their depiction of Martians. It seems very inaccurate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd have to take your word for that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, quickly, were you the first person uh, or was your team the first to resurrect DNA this way? It was. So we were the first people to put it into a, a whole other living organism, which is really what you need to do to figure out how a gene functions in development, which is what I'm really interested in. Other people had taken short bits of DNA from Neanderthal specimens and put them into cells in culture and shown that they could get receptors to bind and things, but nobody had actually sort of resurrected it in a, in a whole living animal. So if you really want to understand, you know, exactly how a gene works and how it functions in development, you really have to look at it in the broader context of what's happening during development. And you can't really recapitulate that with just cells in a, in a dish. You really do need to go to the whole embryo to do that. So this was the first experiment that showed that you could take DNA from an extinct animal and then resurrect its function in a living organism. So that has all sorts of implications, I guess, now for the kinds of questions we can ask from these ancient DNA studies, whereas before it was really sort of a look-see, you know, how do the genes look? Do they look the same? What can we infer from, you know, what kinds of amino acids they have in common or different and things? Whereas now we can actually take that protein, recreate it, put it into a living organism and see how it works and how it functions. You've established pretty clearly that the thousands didn't actually spin around like tornadoes. So what did they do? Do we what do we know about their behavior? So we know that they were they were pretty much solitary animals. They had a pretty big home range. They would cover large distances. They were they, I guess they were basically had exactly the same ecological niche or niche as a as a dog. So they mm-hmm. would be you know they they cover large distances. They're carnivores. They catch animals, eat them. Um, so basically, that's why they look so much in form like a dog. And so different from the majority of other marsupials, which is something that's really interesting about the thylacine. So what's distinctive about them other than their stripes and their large jaws, or is that pretty much it? What's really striking about them is that if you look at the skeleton, it's almost completely indistinguishable from that of a, of a eutherian or a placental mammal dog. Uh, hmm. including, the, including the jaw and the, the dentition, everything is, is, you'd have to be a really skilled paleontologist to, to actually tell the difference and to know that it's a marsupial. There's just a few little characteristics which show it up to be a marsupial and not a dog. And why that's really interesting is that, so we believe the thylacine is really the most striking example we know of in the mammalian kingdom of convergent evolution, which is when, you know, two species evolve to look very similar, even though they have very, very different ancestry. So despite the fact that it last shared a common ancestor with a dog over 130 million years ago, it actually is almost indistinguishable in, in skeletal form from that of a dog. Interesting. So, so there's actually more to it. I, I didn't realize it was it was such a, a, a crossroads uh, animal there. Interesting. Yeah. So it really is. A, so as far as studying the process of convergent evolution, which is really key to our basic understanding of the whole of evolution, um, it really is probably the best mammalian example that we have of that. So it is a very important model. I remember being quite excited when I read about your research um, that you had actually resurrected a, a gene, so to speak. Yeah, and then actually got that inserted into a mouse, and 
and uh, it expressed itself so that you could test it and prove that it worked. Can you talk about that? How do you actually go about extracting uh, a gene and, and getting it into a new animal and proving that it's not something that was already extant in that animal's genome? So, so yeah, so I guess the first thing is, so the first thing you have to do is do a DNA extraction from the animal, which I said before. So it, it comes in lots and lots of tiny little pieces. So that makes it easy to clone small genes, but not so easy to clone big genes that might span a large stretch of DNA. So basically we had to do lots of um, individual little reactions to amplify up various parts of the gene and then stitch them back together to make the entire thylacine gene because it was broken up into little pieces. And then once you've done that, we can put them into or hook them up to other bits of, of DNA that we know that we can act as reporter sequences. So in this case, I took a stretch of the thylacine DNA and hooked it up to another piece of DNA that produces a blue pigment when that DNA is switched on. And then once we've made that what we call a construct, so we'd, we'd put our thylacine DNA with our, our reporter that produces this nice blue pigment and made our, our genetic construct. Once we've made those genetic constructs, you can actually then inject them into early mouse embryos, and some of those will get incorporated into the genome. And then what happens is when the mouse would normally switch on that particular gene, it would now switch on also the thylacine copy of that gene. And when the thylacine copy of the gene came on, it would produce this blue pigment. So it enabled to give us sort of a visual readout of exactly when this gene was switched on and in which tissues it was being switched on in. So we could just see which tissues turned blue and when in development they started to turn blue. And we could actually get a readout then of exactly when this comes on and what it was doing. So it wasn't actually altering the developmental program of the mouse itself. The mouse was still progressing along normally. It was just at that particular stage in development when it activates this particular gene, it also switched on this thylacine copy of the gene. And this was really done in this first experiment was really sort of a proof of principle. Can we take DNA and can we resurrect its function? And we showed that we, we can do that. And so now it's really about, or well, my research is really about trying to identify things that are, are unique to the thylacine, things that we think really were important for changing its body form and function, and then trying to do the same sorts of experiments with those where we would expect to see maybe an alteration of the mouse developmental body plan and changing in some way in response to those genes. A quick follow-up. Uh, so you're working in Connecticut now, but still continuing thylacine research? Correct. So, so how do you get access to all the sample tissue? How does that work? Museum Victoria and also the Tasmania Museum gave me lots of access to specimens that they had. And actually, there's thylacine um, collections all across the world. So because it had a really unique coloration in its pelt, I guess lots of museums were very interested in getting samples so there's quite a few samples in the U.S. There's a number of museums that have them, including the Smithsonian, have quite a few pelts from thylacines. Also across Europe, there is tons and tons of samples um, in all different museums across the whole of Europe, as well as in Australia. So there's actually quite a lot of specimens around. And I found when I was doing this that the DNA we can get from the, the tanned pelts is almost as good as the stuff that we can get from the ethanol-preserved specimens. So we really are quite able to, to get a lot of tissue from these because pelts, you know, they can just sort of trim off extra tissue around the outside that doesn't interfere with the, the nice fur of the, of the animal pelt itself. So you can actually get, you know, these large bits of tissue and we can look at multiple different specimens and, and get quite a, a lot. So getting access to it is really not, not that difficult. Just going back to the history of the thylacine, why did they die out? So they died out in Tasmania because they um, were believed to be hunting the farm animals. And so the humans actually hunted them completely to extinction, which is really unfortunate. They actually put a bounty on them, um, quite a high bounty for the time, to actually bring in the, the dead thylacines. So they were really aggressively hunted in Tasmania. And then the last known specimen was in the Tasmanian Zoo 
um, back in 1936, I think it was, when it died. And so that was the last known specimen that we had, yeah, died in 1936. Yeah, that was Benjamin, which is controversial because they really think it was a girl. <laughs> so the whole story of Benjamin is a, is a very convoluted and, and controversial one. So the person who named him Benjamin and, and, you know, they talked about this whole time of the animal being at the zoo was actually never actually a keeper at the zoo at the time. The fact you can see it's a girl, so it's a bit controversial, but the, we do know whoever it was, this, this female Benjamin, died on, on September 7th in 1936, so that was the last known thylacine. In, Benjamina. Yeah. Well, maybe that well, was her, I, la- her last name. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I mean, look, this is it is it is uh, 2011. Uh, I think that you know we should we should we should be very open minded about such things. So, um, speaking of speaking of dying out and things like that, uh, as as I'm sure you know, there have been occasional sightings and reported sightings since that time. Uh, between, in fact, I was reading up the one guy, a man named Stephen Smith, said that he cataloged hundreds of sightings in Tasmania between 1936 and I think 1980. Um, what do you what do you make of that? Well, the, so the, yeah, I guess there's been reported sightings since it was called named extinct. I guess there's but every year people come forth and say there's been sightings of the of the thylacine, but there's been mm-hmm. no evidence ever brought forward for it. And a few years ago, there was a, a magazine in Australia that actually offered a, a million dollar reward for actual proof of a living thylacine in the wild. And so people set off in droves trying to find thylacines, and nobody ever was able to. So. I think, you know, Tasmania is not that big and even its most inaccessible parts are not that inaccessible. I would think if there really was living animals out there in the wild, which would be fantastic if there was, I think, sadly, they would have been discovered by now if they really existed. Step into the world of power, loyalty and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Mm-hmm. Can I ask, Wikipedia is not the, the best authority, but there's just some information on there, and it says that a group called the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora uh, lists the, the creature as being possibly extinct. <laughs> well, I guess since we have no evidence that it, it's, it's still extant, I think we have to call it extinct, because I guess you could say that about any extinct species, that it's still possible (laughs) somewhere out there there could be, you know, one or two specimens living, but I I really don't think that's the case. I would love to believe otherwise, 
but I think there is just no evidence and I really think that it would have been found by now. There's been enough excitement about the thylacine that, and people looking for them that they really would have mm-hmm. found them if they were if they were there. And I think, you know, they look so much like a dog that it's not hard to, to imagine, that, you know, if it's a misty morning or something and there is a wild dog running around that you might mistakenly think it's a thylacine. It's really, you know, very little that uh, you could tell the difference between them. So I think that's the reason why there's so many active sightings all the time is that people just see dogs that look maybe, you know, that light tan colour, something similar to what the thylacine looked like, and just presume it's a thylacine. A few years ago, uh, a guy named Mike Archer from uh, the University of New South Wales had a, yeah. a project to revive the thylacine, and there was a lot of publicity around that, And but there was all a lot of scepticism around it as well. Um, was your project tied to that work, or is it an outshoot to that? Or and, and, and what's your opinion of the viability of that effort? Yeah, so it's not it's not linked to any of Mike Archer's work, my work. And uh, yeah, I guess Mark Archer he kind of made a lot of really bold claims about what he could do because he found these specimens as well. You know, he was he was one of the directors of the museum. He saw the specimens there, and I think he proclaimed on Australian television actually at one point that we would all be going to the pet shop and buying thylacines within 10 years or something, which is preposterous. So, <laughs> I've got mine. Yeah, it'd be great, but I really don't see that happening. So, <laughs> but, you know, the problem is with, these, with all of these, these things where we're trying to bring DNA back from extinct species is it's so highly fragmented. We really just don't have the technology yet to be able to recreate that into a, into a functional genome. We just, we're just still a long way off having that technology to bring these things back. I think there was an announcement from Riken not long ago about the mammoth and saying they were going to try and bring the mammoth back. And I guess the mammoth is probably a better model organism to try and bring back than most just because they have a lot of the reproductive biology of elephants worked out. So they have a nice host species that they could possibly transplant a a mammoth-like embryo back into. But still, I mean, the mammoth genome is such a massive fragmented mess. I just have no idea how they possibly think they could recreate that into a, an actual representative of the original mammoth genome. So I guess one of the main problems with all mammals and, and our genomes is it's made up of about 50% of just repeat sequences. So we have just these random repeats that just go on and on for, for many thousands and thousands of, of bases in our DNA. And those repeats we now know are, are really quite important in determining when and where genes are expressed and to what level they're being expressed. And the problem is when, when you have a genome from an extinct species and it's broken up into so many tiny pieces, it's kind of like a, a million-piece puzzle, if you like, and 50% of it is sky. And you've got to try and figure out how all those blue bits fit back together again. Everything looks exactly the same. There's no way to really orientate those pieces because they're just repeats of one another. There's no way to try and put them together in any way that you can actually then know that that's how it existed in this extinct species. And so because of that, there's absolutely there's no way with any of these species that we can actually fully recreate a genome. The best we can do is try and find a closely living relative and base it as strongly as we can on that. But we couldn't actually make it a, a full mammoth genome or a full thylacine genome from these kinds of specimens. Wasn't there another uh, uh, specialist who was working in this area too, a Craig Venter? Uh, was he working with Mike Archer? Yeah, so I mean, he's done a lot of ancient DNA work as well. So I guess between them, they were trying to um, just see if they could sequence as much DNA as possible. And I think they found very early on that, you know, we, you can get good DNA from the thylacine. So you can generate a lot of sequence. It's very tangible to think that we can completely sequence the unique parts of the thylacine genome. So we can get its whole nuclear DNA sequenced. All of the genes are coded for proteins and things. We'll be able to determine those. 
But then as far as then actually recapitulating what the chromosomes looked like and what the actual structure of those genes was in the larger context of a whole genome, we just have no way of really rebuilding that. We can base it on something close like the numbat, but we can't actually figure it out from just that DNA by itself. If you were able to do it, if you could get the DNA, could you go over how that would work? How do you actually reconstruct the genome from the amplified material you find? And then how do you turn that into a, a, a genetic payload to fertilize an egg? How would it work if it could work? So I guess one of the, the greatest advances we've had in this area of genetics um, recently has been the next generation sequencing platforms. So we have these new ways of sequencing thousands, well, millions of bases of DNA at once. And one of the really nice things about these platforms, which has really pushed ancient DNA studies forward, is they're particularly designed to amplify and to sequence very short fragments of DNA. And that's really how they work. Um, and they do it in, in parallel. And the nice thing about this ancient DNA is it's already broken up into these really short little fragments. So you kind of have your sample ready to go. So with these deep sequencing platforms, it's very easy to take ancient DNA and then do a really good sequence of it. But then that's where we come in now with things getting a little bit more difficult is then how would you, if you wanted to recreate a living species, how would you go from our sequence to actually doing that? So as I said before, the the mammoth is probably the easiest example to talk about just because we know a lot about reproductive biology in elephants. And that's because they use them and perform in vitro fertilization on elephants in zoos all around the world. So they, they kind of know how to regulate an elephant reproductive cycle. They can um, fertilize elephant eggs in culture and then transplant them into a recipient female. So what you would have to do in, in that case, if you wanted to recreate a mammoth, for example, is I guess you would have to sequence the mammoth genome first. Then you would have to compare it to an elephant genome and figure out everywhere that the mammoth differed from the elephant. And then you would have to recombine that mammoth DNA into a living elephant genome. So you, you have to take an existing genome, you have to take chromosomes that are already there and built, and then you can kind of switch out some of the elephant DNA for mammoth DNA. So you would kind of mammothize an elephant embryo, if you like. And then once you've done that, you could then transplant that embryo back into an elephant and then have it go through pregnancy and then give birth to a mammothized type elephant. So in the thylacine, you know, in, in marsupials in general, we don't know uh, have an awful lot of knowledge about their um, reproductive biology. We do have quite a, a, a lot, but not enough to do these sorts of experiments to be able to take a numbat, for example, regulate its reproductive cycle, perform in vitro fertilization. All those things <clears throat> are quite time-consuming techniques to work up, and we just don't have that experience yet. Great answer. Thanks. It occurs to me that this is, you know, all the just listening to you describe all the all the work and all the technology and all the effort that goes into it, uh, whether you're talking about thylacines or mammoths or what have you, um, what's, what is the real practical benefit to that? I mean, okay, say, say that we can spend, you know, X numbers of, of dollars to, to bring back a thylacine or a mammoth or, or dodo. Um, is there, what, what's the, what's the real world practical benefit to that other than just saying, Hey, cool. We now have a thylacine or a mammoth or a dodo. So that's a really excellent question. It's a really good one because you're right. So, so what is the benefit to doing this? And, and do we want to be spending money on trying to, you know, figure out what the genomes was of extinct species when we have extant species that are on the brink of extinction that we could maybe better invest money in trying to, to save those. So I think, as far as an angle of doing this kind of work to bring animals back to life, I think I don't think it's very viable for funding. I don't think that's a good way to spend money because it's going to cost too much money to bring these species back. And, and to what end are we really trying to, to, to bring these species back? It's just going to be too difficult and, and too much. But I think 
for things like the thylacine and for, for you know, many other interesting animal species which have gone extinct, there's an awful lot that we can learn from their genomes just as important model species. So my key interest in the thylacine is really it being this striking example of convergent evolution and actually how evolution occurs at a molecular level, so how our DNA changes to evolve. We don't really know an awful lot about that process. And the thylacine, because it looks so much like a dog but is so distantly related, gives us a really unique opportunity to start to look at the genome and try to figure out how its genome has evolved so that it has this structure that looks so dog-like. And we already have the dog genome sequenced as well, so that's already in the databases out there. So we have those resources already available to us. So something like sequencing the thylacine genome, you know, I would say the reason for doing something like that would be really just to give us a really good understanding of the process of evolution. It wouldn't be to bring the animal back, but it would be rather to try and understand these fundamental genetic principles. And because it's such a unique model that unfortunately has gone extinct, we can still access its DNA and we can still get that really sort of interesting information from it being so unique in the mammalian kingdom. But the things like the mammoth, you know, I guess people are doing it just because it's, it's interesting. So I guess people have done the mammoth and Neanderthal. I guess Neanderthal can tell us a lot about our own evolution. So that's an interesting model to see, you know, how humans have evolved, what kinds of differences that they had from us and what kind of similarities with the mammoth, I guess it's just an enigmatic creature. You know, people love mammoths, and it, it, I think people are just excited about doing that kind of thing. And again, they sort of they're in a unique situation where there are some of these frozen specimens where the DNA is a little bit more intact than in animals that haven't been kept in such cold environments, so they can get some more information back from it. But as far as you know, the real whether it's worth spending millions and millions of dollars on trying to recreate a, a mammoth, I would have to say, from my own personal opinion, would be no. You haven't tasted one though, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I bet they're delicious. The, uh, so we don't have the, the complete uh, thylacine genome, and, but I think I read we do have a complete Neanderthal genome, but, but there would be lots of ethical issues if, with trying to clone a Neanderthal, right? Right, yes. So what yeah. about uh, thylacines? Are there any ethical issues with the, the sort of work you're doing that you have to deal with? Um, well, you know, since I'm not trying to bring one back, no. But I would think if you were trying to bring back one, bring one back, there would be ethical issues associated with that. You know, people ask me that question all the time, you know, would it be ethical to bring back a thylacine? I, I think, yes, I think it would be fine to do it. I mean, we, we send the animal extinct. I don't see any problem if we had the technology and it was easy to do to bring it back. I see no reason why as with any other animal that would be on the brink of extinction, why we shouldn't do everything to try and bring that animal back from the brink or, you know, recreate that species and try and reintroduce it into its natural habitat. As long as the habitat's still there and, you know, the animal can live, then I think there's no, no ethical issue associated with doing that personally. And are there any groups that might have a particular interest in funding this kind of research? So I guess basically in the US, the NSF are the people who are most interested in, doing, in funding this kind of work. And, but it really has to be based on basic genetic principles. So you can't do it just based on, you know, I'd really like to bring the thylacine back. It has to be for other reasons. So something like trying to understand convergent evolution is something that they would be interested in that kind of project and in funding that kind of research, as opposed to let's just bring it back because it's really cool. And it is very cool. Uh, in fact, I was going to ask about that. It's, it seems like the, the thylacine seems to have really captured the public's interest uh, in a way that rel relatively few extinct animals or recently extinct animals have, such as maybe the dodo. Why do you think that is? Is there something romantic or noble or fearsome about them? Or why, why do you think people find the thylacine so cool? I think it is because it looks so tiger-like. It had that massive jaw. And we have some of those really nice black and white you know, film footages of them pacing backwards and forwards and then yawning so they're opening their mouths right up and they've got their big teeth and things. So, 
yeah, I guess mammals always kind of get more favorably viewed than birds and reptiles and other species that have gone extinct just because people like like mammals. And these are really cool because they look exactly like a dog, but they have a pouch. So they have mm-hmm. lots of, you know, their, their marsupial characteristics as well. So they really are sort of something very different and unique, I think, which is what makes them so interesting. And I, I would guess it's probably probably also a function of because there are, uh, you know, films of it and there are photographs of it. It's more tangible. It's not just some sort of abstract, oh, this, this you know, this whole thing is went extinct, you know, hundreds of years ago. Whereas, yeah. you know, you can actually look at some and say you can you can picture that, you know, being brought back. So that's yeah. probably part of it. And it's something that, you know, our, our great grandparents would have been around when these were roaming. So it's something, you know, that is much more real to us, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, no, we've we've had several guests on Monster Talk talk to us about um, uh, developmental morphology and uh, evolution and convergent evolution. In in the case of the thylacines and the dogs, what what do you think the research or what's your hypothesis about um, the similarity in their build? Do you think there's going to be markers there that are going to be almost identical, or is it going to be something that's easy to? test to see why they look so much alike what what, what what's the uh, how how's your research leaning these days so i guess what what we, we want to do is sequence the entire thylacine genome really sort of get that all sorted out what all the protein coding genes look like and their promoter regions so the regions that drive their expression in various tissues and then we can compare those genomes then to the dog and see where it looks very similar and where it looks very different and i guess we already know quite a lot about dogs and what controls their morphology because you know there's so many different breeds of dogs even though they're one continuous species and we know quite a lot about their genetics because they've had so much inbreeding over the years as they've bred to you know for certain morphological characteristics like short legs or long legs you know they've really done quite a lot in the dog that we can use to to identify genes that are important for those those developmental things and so we can specifically target those genes i guess to start off with in the thylacine and see if the promoter regions of those genes or if the promoters themselves look similar to that that we see in a thylacine and a dog. So do they look like they've undergone convergent evolution? And then using the method that we, we did with the mouse, we can then actually take that stretch of DNA, put it into a mouse and see if we can affect limb development in the mouse or skeletal development in some way. So we can actually try and identify these things by sort of doing a, a computational work at, at, to start off with to see what looks similar and what looks different. And then we can actually take that to a biological um, experiment where we can actually put it into a living organism and see if we can actually get that to affect skeletal development. And uh, given what we know about population genetics, do you have an idea of how many thylacines would need to be alive to have survived since the 30s? Yeah, I guess it would be quite a few. I mean, there would have to be a lot of them out there. I, I wouldn't know a number in particular, but we're talking, you know, like tens at least to 100 or something species out there or animals, individual animals out there in order to have, to have kept the population alive. And so that's another reason why we think, you know, if, since the 1930s, if, if they haven't been spotted, you know, and there hasn't been convincing spotting or trapping of these animals yet, then they really are not out there. Mm-hmm. Uh- I was just going to ask, um, you alluded earlier in the interview uh, to the reputation that they might not be as, as fierce as the reality. Uh, what's your, what's your take, take on that? So I think they got a really bad rap for being animals that, that, that killed livestock. It actually turns out that their primary diet from the people who studied them at the zoo at least was really very small marsupial mammals was really what they, they primarily ate. And they were um, nocturnal, so they would come out at night and they would eat these small Australian marsupials, which are mostly running around at night as well. And so as far as them killing livestock, so killing sheep and killing chickens, which is what they were really pegged as being really bad at, was really killing people's livestock, 
that was really mm-hmm. very untrue. They probably were not the problem. In fact, the, the books that describe it said that the, the real problem back in Tasmania at that time was people stealing other people's animals. So they would go and steal their livestock. And then I guess the thylacine was an easy scapegoat for that because, you know, we had this large, fearsome-looking marsupial running around and they would just blame it on thylacines. They must have been killed by thylacines when people were actually stealing them. And the pictures they have in existence, so I think there's even the one on Wikipedia of the, the thylacine standing there with a, a dead chicken hanging out of its mouth. And they've since shown that. later that that was a, actually a stuffed pose specimen and they've just put a dead chicken in its mouth because there really weren't pictures around oh. of thylacines running off with animals. That's really, that was a complete fake. So they put pictures out there to really get people, you know, in the public against thylacines and really wanting them gone, you know, really posing them as a big risk to their their children and their livestock and you've just got to get rid of them. And so it was really really unfortunate. So we we know that the animal had this huge, massive jaw with the ability to open it really far. Do we we know anything about what their bite force was like? It was very strong. So I think think it was not, not one of the strongest, but they did have a very strong bite force. So much stronger than a dog, much, much stronger than a dog. And so they don't believe that. So one of the controversies was they said that when the dingo came in, so the domestic dog came into Australia, that's what really pushed the thylacine out. But then people have shown that the, the thylacine really would come up off much better in a fight with a dingo than the dingo would because of the strength of their bite. So they had a lot of musculature associated with their jaws. The only way where the dingo does better is they actually have a much thicker skull. So as far as like chomping down on the, the head case, I guess, which would be deadly, I guess the dingo might come up, might survive a little better than the, the thylacine would, whereas a dingo might be able to bite through a thylacine skull. The thylacine <laughs> wouldn't be able to bite through a dingo skull. Hmm. And I'd heard as well that they had a tail that was somewhat similar to kangaroos. Is that true? Yeah, so they have a, a, a highly musculature, very long tail. So the tail was almost as long as their entire body, and they could actually use it to prop themselves up on their back legs, sort of like a tripod, so that they oh, could stand okay. up on their back legs and, and really balance off it. So, yeah, it's much more... <laughs> Muscular, muscular than, than a, a normal Eutherian dog tail would be, and quite a bit longer as well. Neat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Tripods. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of any reason why they would need to stand like a tripod. I can't think of, they're not really reaching up into branches for anything. But well, it seems like from, from, from our predator perspective, it'd give them a better vantage point. Yeah. And maybe for fighting or conflict or something, they, they could do it, yeah. And to scare me, they could. Yeah. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, is there anything else you want to tell us about uh, or the public about your research? Uh, anything you're working on or you, you've uncovered that's uh, especially cool? Well, I guess it's still ongoing at the moment, but I hope to uncover lots of especially cool things about convergent evolution. So <laughs> I really I hope the thylacine, we can use it as a really good model to start to understand that process in a little bit more detail. And because mammals, we have so much genetic resources for mas- mammals now, if we can add the thylacine to that list of genetic resources, so if we can sequence its genome and, and, and really added to that, I think there's an awful lot that we can learn from some of these extinct species. Some of these really uniquely ones that occupied very unique niches, I think um, we can really get a lot of information from them. Cool. And uh, Andrew, we always like to ask our guests uh, to name their favourite monsters. So um, what's your favourite monster? I think my favourite monster would have to be Thylacoleo, which is the, the sort of the prelude to a thylacine, if you like. It's extinct now, went extinct around 2 million years ago, but it was a, a really big thylacine-type creature. So they were about 250 pounds, I guess, somewhere around around that vicinity. Wow. wow. Yeah, they were, they were big, and they were very fearsome-looking. Um, but what's really cool about Leo is they, they had the most strong jaw ratio to body weight 
of any known mammalian species. So they are the mammal with the, the strongest bite force relative to their body weight of any mammal ever characterized extinct, ex- extinct or extant. Wow. Could, could they also stand on their tail? They, they did have that really strong tail. So Terrifying. Dr. Park, tell us, how, tell us how you spell that so we can Google that. It's T-H-Y-L-A-C-O-L-E-O. Okay. I, I'm, 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 sure, I'm, I'm sure people right now are like trying to Google it. Yeah. Find out, we'll, get pictures we'll put it in the show cool. notes. We'll put a link in the show notes to a Wikipedia article or yeah. something if we can find one. And well, sorry, what happened to them? They went extinct um, like about two million years ago. So I guess they went extinct with lots of the, the major large predators that we had in Australia at the time. Wow. So they, were, yeah, they were approximately the weight of a small lion <laughs> and had this crazy strong jaw bite. So I reckon they're a pretty, pretty formidable monster. Yeah, yeah sounds yeah. like. Very cool. I, like I can't wait to see it on the Sci-Fi Channel. This is going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Versus giant crocodiles. It's going to be neat. Yeah. Well, and thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Pask, for joining us today on Monster Talk. We really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. And I look forward to seeing more of your research when it comes out. This is great. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank right. you. Bye bye. Good talking to you all. Bye bye. Monster Talk. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. You heard Dr. Andrew Pask talking about his research on thylacines. Your hosts were myself, Blake Smith, Benjamin Radford, and Dr. Kieran Stolzno. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine, and we thank them for their support. If you'd like to support our show, you can give us a review on iTunes, or go to monstertalk.org and donate a little. Our show is not dependent on donations, but when you do give, you help us buy better research material and increase the likelihood you'll see us at Skeptic Conferences in person. Special thanks this week to Wesley Adams for his generous donations. If you donate, I'll be happy to say your name as well. I'm talking to you, Eileen Dover, and your brother, Ben, as well. Theme music for Monster Talk was by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. I always feel like we sound like the uh, fish from uh, The Meaning of Life. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> Hope we don't look like them, though. I hope not, too. (laughs) Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.